together. Sure, Jesus' death is central to salvation, but none of Jesus' disciples would have understood his death or believed that it mattered if Jesus hadn't been raised again. Without Easter, there would have been nobody to proclaim the gospel, nobody to tell about Jesus or to live out his ways for the world to see, both then and in the years to come. Easter is glorious. Why? Because on Easter, we remember how the kingdom of God and the salvation of humanity rose out of the ashes of defeat and death. The disciples had scattered. They disowned their master, Jesus. Jesus himself, their king and their rabbi, had been humiliated and crucified by their enemies. And his followers were left confused and bewildered and hiding in fear. And yet, on Easter morning, the tide turned. Jesus was alive again, risen from the grave. Not even death could hold him. And that power, that hope, that life unleashed a torrent of events which has left the world forever changed. Today, because of Easter, Christianity is the largest religion in the world. Because of Easter, the good news about Jesus has gone out to almost every nation of the world. And if you're a student of history, you know that a good case can be made that because of Easter, slavery has been abolished in much of the world. The sick can count on quality medical care. Women and minorities are allowed to vote. Orphans are cared for and not left on the streets to fend for themselves. Many workers have reasonable work hours and decent pay. Much of that was accomplished by followers of Jesus inspired by what happened on Good Friday and then Easter morning. And so we may wonder how much of that would have happened, how history would have been different if Jesus had not risen from the grave. Easter is glorious. Look at the words Paul uses in our passage this morning to describe it. He's describing the good news of Jesus, which is that Jesus not only died, but that he also rose again. And Paul describes it as a treasure, verse 7, as all-surpassing power, also in verse 7, as the life of Jesus, verses 10 and 11. And up in verse 6 as well, he describes it as light and as God's glory. Easter is truly glorious. So question, why don't we experience more of that Easter glory in our lives today? Where's the Easter glory? Have you ever wondered, as you've read the stories of the Bible and compared them to your own life? Especially as as you read the part of the biblical story that happens after Easter. I mean, think of Jesus' disciples before Easter. They have little faith. They're squabbling about who's the greatest. They're jealous of each other. They try to cast out a demon like they've seen Jesus do, and it doesn't work. They're slow to understand what Jesus is teaching and who Jesus is. They're afraid. They abandon Jesus when he needs them most. We all relate to all that, right? But what about after Easter? After Easter, these same disciples start boldly proclaiming the good news about Jesus. They start healing the sick. They cast out demons. They gladly endure imprisonment and persecution for the sake of Jesus. They sell their possessions and give to the poor. They share what they have with one another. They are filled with joy. They travel the world so that all may have the hope that they have. Now we have some of that at Community Bible Church. 
But why don't we see more of that today? Where's the Easter glory? As John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, famously said when he was a brand new Christian and he'd begun reading his Bible and and then he walked into church and he quickly noticed in church the lack of the miracles, the lack of joy, the lack of power, the lack of transformed lives that he had begun reading about in the New Testament. And he said, where's the stuff? (laughs) Where is the stuff? The great Christian writer A.W. Tozer put it this way. He was alluding to the powerful encounter that the prophet Elijah had on Mount Carmel when he challenged the prophets of Baal to call down fire from heaven to light an altar to their God to show that their God was real. And then when they failed, Elijah called on the true God and God answered with fire and devoured the sacrifice. Tozer says of the church, There is today no lack of Bible teachers to set forth correctly the principles of the doctrines of Christ. But too many of these seem satisfied to teach the fundamentals of the faith year after year, strangely unaware that there is in their ministry no manifest presence nor anything unusual in their personal lives. Current evangelicalism has laid the altar and divided the sacrifice into parts, but now seems satisfied to count the stones and rearrange the pieces with never a care that there is not a sign of fire upon the top of lofty Carmel. But God be thanked that there are a few who care. These are those who, while they love the altar and delight in the sacrifice, are yet unable to reconcile themselves to the continued absence of fire. They desire God above all. They are athirst to taste For themselves, the piercing sweetness of the love of Christ about whom all the holy prophets did write and the psalmist did sing. Where is the Easter glory? I'm sure there are a number of ways to answer that question. I just want to suggest the one that our passage this morning suggests to us. Paul says uh, of whom his own life was just awash with Easter glory. Paul says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. I suspect that part of the reason for our lack of Easter glory, the treasure that Paul talks about in this passage, is that we have changed the packaging that the treasure is contained in. We've traded in jars of clay for fancy bejeweled velvet boxes. Or to modernize the imagery, we've traded in plastic grocery bags for fashionable, high-quality leather luggage. Let's take a look at the passage and try to understand what Paul is saying here. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in the Greek city of Corinth. Paul had started a church there himself, and then this church had broken his heart and given him gray hair. One of the reasons for this Don't worry, I didn't get my gray hair from you, I don't think. (laughs) One one of the reasons for this for Paul was that some rival apostles had come into this church in Corinth and had won over the crowd. These super apostles, as Paul sarcastically calls them elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, were really impressive and talented people. They were smart, they were eloquent, they were wealthy, they were successful. They really had their acts together. Do you know any Christian leaders like that? Are are you tempted to measure yourself against Ken and Barbie Christians who have it all together? 
Do you feel pressure to measure your family up against the focus on the family family, you know, who, who are always polite and kind to each other and never fight on their way to church? Are you ever tempted to measure our church against big, smoothly running churches with top-notch programs and multiple services and awesome worship bands where everything seems to just go right all the time? Well, the Corinthians had measured Paul up against the super apostles, and they decided Paul didn't measure up. After all, Paul was just a short, bald guy, if we can trust the ancient descriptions of him. He, he wasn't that eloquent either. He's kind of a hard to understand sometimes, isn't he? Paul wasn't wealthy. He, uh, some people think, had really poor eyesight. His body was broken and full of scars from all the beatings he'd taken. Paul traveled with a ragtag bunch of helpers who pretty much looked like him. And the message of this group, Paul and his helpers, was all about this guy, Jesus, who had claimed to be a king, but had gotten killed in the most terrible, shameful way before he could establish his kingdom. And then if you follow this guy, Jesus, you could expect to go through rough trials as well. Not exactly a recipe to win friends and influence people. Compared to the super apostles, the Corinthians didn't think so. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians, and among other things, it's an appeal and it's a plea for the Corinthians to look beyond the surface of things. Because truth be told, the super apostles were in it for the money and for their own egos. They were more about themselves than about Jesus, the crucified one. They had a thin layer of Christianity. They said the right things, but it was what they left out that concerned Paul. Living out the way of the cross, the way of love, was something they never quite got around to. So Paul writes to the Corinthians and he carefully explains and he vigorously defends his own gospel and his own ministry. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's the picture Paul uses to describe his own Jesus ministry over against that of the respectable, successful religion of the super apostles. Now, Treasures in clay jars, that's a striking image. You have to realize that in Paul's day, treasures were not kept in clay jars. If you had treasure, you had gold coins or a ruby brooch or fine indigo fabric, you would store it in a sturdy, elegant bronze jar normally. Because clay jars were a dime a dozen. They were cheap, common, and disposable. To store your treasure in, in a clay jar would be like today to serve filet mignon at a fine restaurant on paper plates or to serve fine aged wine in Dixie cups. It'd be like to be a well-heeled salesperson in your silk suit showing up for a big presentation in a corporate boardroom. Maybe you're selling Italian leather folios or crystal desk clocks for all the executives and you're carrying your samples in a ratty old paper bag. It doesn't mesh. The container doesn't correspond to the valuables it contains. But that was Paul's M.O. Because that was Jesus' M.O. We have these treasures in jars of clay. Rich treasure in cheap, ordinary, discardable containers. Why? So that everyone's attention is drawn to the treasure. The Easter glory, not to the container holding it. 
But what's our MO? Is, is that our MO, that of Jesus, that of Paul? Or, or like the super apostles, have we sought to make Christianity refined and sophisticated and respectable and comfortable? So, so here's what I think is the, the key point, the key biblical truth of today's passage for us. We've got to get out of the way of Easter. Because too often we get in Easter's way. If you and I are more interested in being respectable and comfortable and sophisticated and cool and successful or whatever else, instead of being more like Jesus, then we are getting in the way. We're robbing Easter of its glory and of its power. Maybe that's why when when people look at us, they don't see more Easter glory than they do. Maybe it's because when people look at us, they see nice, respectable, even fancy containers instead of the glorious treasure which resides inside. You know, I think of a, of a TV preacher on, on um, TV with, with a fancy suit who says all the right things, drives fancy cars, and, and then I think of Mother Teresa. Which one showed more Easter glory? And you think of the container, the presentation of each one. Well, Paul refuses to to let the container get in the way of the treasure inside. And and that's why he was content to allow his life to be like a jar of clay. He wanted to stay out of Jesus' way so that Jesus could shine through. So what might this look like for us? What might it look like to let the glory of Easter shine for itself? There are a lot of ways. Let me just mention two. One way is by being honest about who we really are. And what we really struggle with. Now, that doesn't mean we air all our dirty laundry, our dirty laundry to everyone we meet. But, but rather that we don't pretend to be someone that really we're not. And, and that as we get to know people and, and we, we feel we can trust them, we, we begin to share some of our struggles and some of who we really are. Have you ever sat in, in a Bible study and in a conversation and all the conversation was just polite and superficial? How about a study where, where the sharing was real and honest? I tell you, I've sat in both kinds of groups. And I remember a study of a, a number of years ago with some, some CBC folks from this church. And, and people were really honest in that study. And, and our relationships grew deeply. And, and we shared our struggles with one another. We prayed for one another. And many in that group experienced significant growth and transformation. And one time we were talking about what a powerful experience the group had been. And and a couple of the guys said, Dick, when this study first started, we weren't sure what to make of you. I I was new at CBC at the time. Um, But but they said, pretty quickly you opened up about your own life and and your own struggles. And we realized you were real just like us. And and that gave us permission to be open and honest too. And, And that's why we think this study has been so great. So being honest, being real, that's one way to let the glory of Easter shine through. A second way is to not overlook the ordinary people. Dwight Roberts tells a story in his book, You Are God's Plan A, and the chapter is entitled, Wrapped in Ordinary. And he begins this story, Grace was about as ordinary as any woman I've ever known. She lived in an old farmhouse on Strawtown Pike in rural Indiana. 
One of her legs was shorter than the other, giving her a signature limp. In her 70s, Grace wore her wiry hair in a gray bun, along with a colorful dress and nylon stockings, which occasionally bunched around her ankles. Over the years, Grace and her husband had raised five boys, all of whom were now grown and living with their families in other places. After her husband passed away, she entered a strange season in life with fewer responsibilities and meaningful things to do. But Grace didn't want to spend the final years of her life limping to the finish line. She wanted to sprint, so she asked God to give her something significant to do for him. I don't know how God could use an old woman like me, but if he'll show me what he wants me to do, I'll do it, Grace once told me. God answered her prayer and gave me a front row seat to watch the miraculous story unfold. One day, while thumbing through a prison ministry magazine, she read an open letter from an inmate. Bobby had just committed his life to Christ at a prison revival service, and he wasn't sure what to do next. So in his letter, he asked for a godly grandmother who would disciple him, teach him about Jesus. Grace took this as God's answer. Grace began by leading Bobby through a Bible study correspondence course. Soon afterwards, Bobby led his cellmate to believe in Christ, and he became Grace's second spiritual grandson. Over lunch, a little time later, she showed me pictures of her growing family of seven boys, each of whom met Christ through Bobby's influence. I'm having the time of my life, she exclaimed as she recounted their stories. A surprise happened on my next visit to Grace. As I walked into her home, I opened her closet door to hang up my coat, but there was no room inside. It was packed with filing cabinets and Bible study booklets. And to my amazement, her couch and coffee table had been replaced by work tables and computers. Wow, what's going on, Grace? I could hardly wait to hear her tell about it. Oh, Dwight, a lot has happened since you were here last, she replied. God has done more with this ministry than I ever imagined. Did you know that prisoners get transferred? Some of my boys were moved to prisons in Alabama and Texas, and they've been sharing Christ with inmates in those prisons too. I'm now leading Bible studies with inmates in three prisons, all from my little farmhouse on Strawtown Pike. Over the years, I've dropped by Grace's house to check up on her. During my last visit, she showed me a world map on her wall with dots all over the Americas. Grace, what are all these dots, I asked. Those are my boys and all their extras, she replied. Okay, Grace, I I know about your boys, but what are their extras? Well, a while back, some of my boys started getting out of prison, and and they'd lead their wives and children and other family members to Christ, and so they asked me if I'd be their spiritual grandma to their uh, family members as well. Those are the extras that I never expected God to bring into my spiritual family. But what about all those dots in the Latin countries, I asked in amazement. How did they get there? She explained that some of her Hispanic inmates were released from prison, and they introduced her to their friends and family members. Soon, letters written in Spanish started arriving from people in Cuba, so she asked God to send her someone who could translate. God led her to a retired Spanish teacher named Clara. I'm in over my head, Dwight, she chuckled. (laughs) We're now discipling more than a thousand Spanish-speaking people, and Clara comes over to my house three days a week to translate their correspondence. I've even added seven college students who volunteer with me. Isn't Easter amazing? It's powerful. It's glorious. It's the life of Jesus working itself out through ordinary people. But why don't we see more of it? 
Is it because we're getting in the way of Easter's glory, of Easter's power? Paul says, we have this treasure, not in velvet boxes or bronze jars, but in simple, ordinary jars of clay. Why? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So the question I want to leave us all with this, how do you need to get out of the way? And if you want to take the piece of paper that was handed out to you earlier by the ushers, as we close our service and sing the closing song, you might want to think about a way that you might be getting in the way of Easter and write it down as a confession to God. And as we sing the closing song or as it ends, whenever you feel it's appropriate, we're going to begin to file out. Um, Kathy and Chris and some others have done a lovely display for us outside. There's a place to the left where there's a basket where you can lay that thing down at the foot of the cross and give it back to God. And then I encourage people, um, as you want to mingle and visit with one another, not to do it right in the foyer because we need to uh, allow people to travel through there. So move off into the cafe or move upstairs where there's coffee and refreshments waiting. Let's worship.